Therapy Chat Podcast, episode 135. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. Today, I have a very interesting guest to talk about a fascinating subject that I think many people are curious about and which definitely comes up in the world of trauma therapy, but it's also currently kind of in the public awareness as well. Today, I'm going to be talking about cults with Dr. Natalie Feinblatt. Natalie, thank you so much for being my guest on Therapy Chat today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So let's just start off, if we can, with you telling the audience a bit about yourself and your work. Sure, I'd be happy to. So I am a licensed clinical psychologist in Los Angeles, California. I've been working in the field for almost 15 years at this point, I think, since pre-licensure to now. I got my master's and doctorate from Pepperdine University, and I've worked in a wide variety of settings over the years, but what I've managed to kind of focus on have, has kind of been twofold, addiction and trauma. And I think it's hard to specialize in addiction without also then having to specialize in trauma. Amen to that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I know that the addiction population has a much higher rate of trauma than the the average population. So unless you're going the the straight 12-step route, which I am very not a lot of trauma addressed in that. So it's good to um, also then start to specialize in trauma. I just got trained in uh, level one EMDR. It's been a little over a year. So I added that to my toolbox. And currently, I split my time. I'm half in private practice in West LA, and I am half working at an intensive outpatient treatment program that treats primarily addiction and then co-occurring disorders, which is when you have an addiction and mental health issues. Awesome, which, you know, I know that they talk about co-occurring disorders, but I think when someone has a substance abuse disorder... Mm -hmm. or substance use disorder, there's 
almost always a mental yeah. health component if it's not depression, anxiety, trauma. Definitely. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, why do we even make that a separate thing? Right. Well, in all the time that I've been working with addiction, I mean, people who, and I'm using air quotes here, people who just have a diagnosis of a substance use disorder, I don't mean just in like a diminutive way, but because um, it's its own big beast to battle with, but people who legitimately only have a substance use disorder are definitely the minority of people. The, the vast majority of clients that come through a, a treatment center for addiction have addiction plus depression, anxiety, borderline personality disorder, eating disorder, something else going on. Right. And my perspective would be as not a specialist in addiction, but a specialist in trauma that there would most often be maybe not with every single person, but most people who have addiction do have underlying trauma. Agreed. hundred percent. I'd say the percentage who don't just haven't recognize those experiences they've had that have been traumatic as being traumatic. <laughs> agreed. Yeah, agreed. I, I don't know if you have the same experience, but I can't tell you how many clients I work with, whether they have addiction or not, who come to me and say at some point, you know, well, I have this thing that happened to me, but I don't think it counts as trauma. And yeah. You have to be like, no, it, I mean, in most of instances, no, it does count as trauma. It absolutely counts as trauma. So oftentimes people suspect that something, but they're, they're not like, you know, it's the type of thing where it's like, well, I wasn't in a car accident. I wasn't sexually assaulted. Therefore, it doesn't quote unquote count when in reality, as, as you and I both know, the understanding of trauma has greatly been enriched and come to be inclusive of a lot more experiences than just the stereotypical thing that people think of when they think of trauma. That's very true. I agree with you. And I would say that it's tricky because I never want to tell someone that their experience isn't what they think it is. Right, of course. But at the same time, there's a level of psychoeducation about if you have been through this, which you have been, it is something that could be traumatic for someone. So it may not feel like trauma to you, but then again, let's consider maybe you came to see me because you have had crippling anxiety your whole life. Could there be a connection between that event that you don't think was traumatic and this anxiety that's always been there and just won't go away? Right, exactly. Yeah. Or depression or both. Mm-hmm. Or substance abuse. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So for anyone who's listening, if you haven't noticed, you know, there's an interplay there that we both agree about. Uh, Yes, I'm I'm 100% on board for that. Yeah. And and I got to say, let's say even people who maybe before their drug use or alcohol use started legitimately didn't have any trauma. Um, Oftentimes, if things get bad enough with drug or alcohol use, trauma will result from that. You know, you'll, you'll get a DUI and you'll get into a car accident because you were drunk. You will be in a very scary, threatening situation with a drug dealer. I've had clients who've had guns pulled on them. Or you police know. pulling guns because they're arresting the drug dealer or them. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Which just because it's the police doesn't make it not traumatic. Oh, no. It's not like your brain's like, oh, it's okay because this is a police officer's gun. No. Agreed. <laughs> a gun is a gun. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And, you know, and I think what you said about how we're understanding the 
definition of trauma to be more broad than people used to think. I definitely believe and consider attachment to be a trauma as well. You know, if someone's attachment needs weren't met, it may, some people separate attachment and trauma, but to me, attachment injury is trauma. So, you know, if you go there, you know, were your emotional needs met when you were a child? Right. Well, no, but I mean, my parents always made sure we had food on the table, roof over our heads, clean clothes to wear. It's like, I know, but. (laughs) Yeah, you can have your basic material needs met and maybe even then some. But if there was, like you said, an attachment rupture or emotional neglect or abuse, that can be trauma. Yep. Okay. So we're in agreement about that. (laughs) Yes. So I'm kind of curious if you have a minute to tell us, how did you get started in working with specialty and helping people who've been in cults? Sure. So it's what I wrote my dissertation on, but it goes back farther than that. And the reason that I got interested in cults, it it literally goes back to my childhood. I don't know if I was single digit ages, I'd have to look it up. But my father was a teamster in the, the film industry for his entire career. And when I was a kid, he worked on a number of Tom Cruise movies. The, the one that comes to mind was Days of Thunder, which is not one of his more well-known movies. But I was a very inquisitive and precocious kid. So when my dad was working on that movie, I remember him or his coworkers or my parents talking about how Tom Cruise is a Scientologist. And it was a word I didn't know. So I asked, what is a Scientologist? And it was really confusing and interesting to me because no one could give me an answer. Like all the grownups seemed to know what this word was. (laughs) Uh Some really knew what it meant. And in my mind, I was like, how how is that possible? Like, y'all know about this. Nobody really knows what it is. Like, oh, it's kind of a religion. People say it's a cult. It's like, it was just confusing for me. So I kind of carried that interest because you can't really, you can't really grow up in the movie industry in Los Angeles without having people talk about Scientology occasionally. So when I was in high school, the internet was becoming a thing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And one day when I was in study hall, I was on the computer in the library on Yahoo. And I decided I should look up Scientology. Maybe I can finally get an answer as to what this thing is. So I Googled it and I went on one of their websites and it really wasn't helping me figure anything out. Mm -hmm. So there was this thing on Yahoo where I went back to Yahoo and it said, Scientology opposing views. And I was like, oh, well, maybe this will give me more information. And it did a whole lot more information. And that's where my interest in cults really took off. Because I read all this stuff about it and I was like, how on earth do people get involved with this? You know, this is horrible that people are being abused and manipulated. So that led me to just reading up on cults and the different criteria. And when it got, you know, fast forward to dissertation time, you know, I was encouraged, like many people, to come up with a list of topics that I cared about. And I did. And that was one of them. And it narrowed down and narrowed down. And finally, it was. I think I'd like to write a literature review on 
how therapists help people who are coming out of cults, recovering from their involvement in cults. Uh, and the, the rest is my dissertation and my life since then. Wow. Great story. And yes. <laughs> I'm sure, well, my husband has his PhD, not in clinical psychology, but I'll tell you that nobody ever asked to read his dissertation, but I am really curious to read yours now. I'm like, Hey, where can we read that? Because, um, you know, anybody who does want to understand more about that is probably like, I mean, I can't help but think what a wealth of information just your dissertation must be with all the references and, you know, how yeah. comprehensive, even though I understand it was more than 10 years ago that you graduated. I think if you want to read it, you, you might be able to find it on Google Scholar. Quite frankly, <laughs> I was one of those people, and I think this happens to a lot of people, but where as much as I love this topic, by the time I was done with my dissertation, I was like, I don't ever want to see this thing again. <laughs> um, and so... So you don't have yours bound on the bookshelf like ours, our house has? <laughs> no, I'm sure it's bound on the bookshelf at Pepperdine because all of them are. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I don't. But I can, I can try to track it down. I mean, I have it saved on my computer somewhere, obviously. But in terms of the final version, I can try to track it down if you want to put it in show notes or anything like that. Yeah. If you, if you do find it, that would be fantastic. I bet people would like to check it out, especially, you know, since so many people who listen to this podcast are therapists. And then if there's anyone listening to this podcast who is a survivor of cult abuse, they may be like, I want to, oh, I want to know those resources. So yeah, I would, I would love to share it with both groups of people. Great. So if you find it, send me a link and I'll put it in the show notes. I will. Thanks. So yeah, you really got me thinking too, because I've always been kind of curious, but a little bit, there's a little bit of like fearfulness about learning about cults, talking about them. It's a taboo subject, sure. you know, because everyone who runs the cults always says it's not a cult. And, <laughs> you know, so you're like, is it really, is it okay to call it that? I don't know. But, um, oh. But I'm thinking, you know, you got me thinking about how you had curiosity in childhood and what I heard about in childhood. Mm -hmm. I'm probably older than you since the Internet came out while you were in high school and it was not there when I was in high school. But I remember when the Jonestown massacre happened. Yep, that was I was about I think um, I don't know. I think it was in 1980 or so. And mm -hmm. I was about nine. Yeah. And that was on the news. And, you know, it was I mean, it was a huge horror for yeah. everyone. Everyone was talking about it. Mm -hmm. I just saw yeah. today, 911 people died there. Yep. It was horrendous. And it's interesting that you bring up Jonestown because I, I listen to a lot of podcasts, yours included, and two podcasts that I listen to right now, coincidentally, are both covering Jonestown at the same time. So I'm wow. getting like a double dose of Jonestown. There's a really good podcast and it's just called Cults that I listen to because as soon as my husband heard about that, he was like, do you know about the Cults podcast? And I was like, right up my alley. <laughs> um, and then I listened to another one that also covers a lot of kind of true crime and just coincidentally, they're both. And I haven't really looked at Jonestown stuff closely since my dissertation. Um, so it's been an interesting uh, review. But yeah, it was a I mean, I think as most people know now, it was both a mass suicide and a mass murder. And, you know, I don't recommend that anybody listen to this, 
but they were they did do audio recordings throughout the whole thing. I think it was all vid- a lot of it was video recorded too because yeah. the news showed up. And a lot of it is available online for you to listen to. Again, I if if you're if thinking of listening to that makes you grit your teeth, don't listen to it. But there is there is ample evidence both from the recordings and just the cause of death for a lot of people that a lot of those people did not drink the flavor aid. They were they were killed. Ah, so they didn't voluntarily drink it. Yeah, that's what the old, you know, for everyone who's younger and not really familiar with this, it's when they say don't drink the Kool-Aid. That's what they're talking about. That's where it comes from. Yeah. I just looked it up while you were talking too. It was 1978. So I was actually seven because I was just thinking to myself, what if that happened in like 1969? Not not when you were alive. (laughs) Yeah. But oh my gosh, I mean, any, any human Mm -hmm. who wasn't part of that group had to wonder how in the world could that happen? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very confusing for most people, and a lot of people like to—I shouldn't say like to—a lot of people tend to make rather dismissive remarks about people who join cults, especially cults where things ended as as tragically as they did with Jonestown. People tend to think that, like, oh, those people must have been weak-minded, weak-willed. They were followers. They, you know, they were just uh, crazy. They were crazy. They were stupid. And, you know, my my research and my dissertation and my my work since then um, has shown that, you know, there is no one is safe from being at risk uh, for cults. Like, it's nice to think that, like, oh, I would never fall victim to that because I'm not stupid. I'm not crazy. I'm not whatever. And it's like, you know, there are so many people that join cults that are doctors lawyers, scientists. It has nothing to do with your intelligence level. It has nothing to do with, you know, being a quote unquote follower or being mindless, you know, and I think people tell themselves that to kind of have a sense of safety, like, oh, it couldn't happen to me because I'm not that. And it's like, well, no, it it could happen to you. That's the same thing we say about domestic violence and sexual violence. Yeah. Well, that would never happen to me because if anyone tried, I would, or if any, if my husband ever did that to me, I would be out of there so fast, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's just a bravado that's really defense. Yeah. And I would, I would say that for most cults out there, and I think it's important to keep in mind that while people think when they, most people think of cults, they think of religious or spiritual groups, but cults can form around any ideology, political, business, even like self-help and psychology. But when when people think about cults, you know, you got to realize that for most of them, and, and a lot of them are consciously designed this way, but for most of them, when you first get involved, things seem okay. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. maybe a few things will seem a little off, but you're like, oh, I got to try something new. I got to, you know what I mean? Be more but, open-minded. Exactly. Like, because Jonestown is, is uh, kind of on my mind right now. You know, when people, before anybody ever went to Guyana, you know, for many years, Jonestown and, and the church that Jim Jones ran was not that out of the ordinary. You know, it things progressed in such a way. It's kind of like the old saying about, you know, you throw a frog in boiling water, he's going to jump right out. Mm-hmm. You put a 
frog in like normal water and turn up the temperature, he'll, he'll boil. It's the same sort of thing. Like when you get involved with most of these groups, things seem pretty okay. And then little stuff starts to build up over time that you rationalize or you excuse until you're in a jungle in Guyana and, you know, and you're like, oh my God, what, what happened? Yeah. And I guess it's, again, it's interesting. It's like domestic violence. It's like you get desensitized. You start, things start off great. And then suddenly you're isolated from everyone, you know, and you are like, whoa, I have no outside resources. I have Mm -hmm. no access to outside resources. How in the world did this happen? And now Mm -hmm. the person that I've been depending on is my threat. Well, and that's something that, because this is a topic where when people find out that I specialize in it, people generally really want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Even though it's taboo, it's also kind of interesting and and, uh, out of the ordinary. But I can't tell you how many people I've spoken with where they they make uh, comments similar to yours and they're absolutely on target with it, which is like, wow, cults sound a lot like abusive relationships, Mm -hmm. dysfunctional families, and domestic violence relationships, you know, and there is a ton of similarities between, you know, bad relationships and highly dysfunctional families and cults. Well, and what I know is that highly dysfunctional and abusive families tend to lead to adult relationships that are abusive. So I wonder if there's a connection in that way for people who are drawn to joining cults or who end up not leaving when things get weird for them. If those people tend to have more of a history of, you know, abusive or dysfunctional families, Mm -hmm. child abuse or sexual abuse or anything like that, is there any connection there? I don't think there are any firm numbers on that. But I, I mean, as somebody who's worked with this topic, I would not be surprised at all and I'm thinking back to the clients that I've worked with over the years who were coming out of cults. I don't know that any of them didn't have some history of trauma, dysfunctional family, abusive relationships, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that makes sense. So kind of anecdotally, that seems to be a common theme, whether it's True. been researched or not. Yeah. I, I would say so from my anecdotal experience. Yeah. And then there's abuse that can happen within the cults, as we were talking about before we started recording mm-hmm. about, in particular, the Children of God cult, which is now called the Family International. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, when you let me know that you wanted to talk about trauma in relation to cults, you know, multiple things sprang to mind, but two things in particular. You know, one is that there are cults where either outright physical or sexual abuse is part of the cult or like the leaders are doing it to some of the members outside of like technically what they believe, but it's happening versus cults where there is not routine physical or sexual abuse as a part of their belief structure or their organization, but where people are traumatized just the same through something called thought reform, which I can, it's the, it's the, it used to be called brainwashing. Now it's thought reform. That's good to know. I didn't even know there was a change in that. So thank yeah, you. Sure. You know, and when it comes to the former, 
you know, the children of God or the family international. Now they've changed their name like 10 times, <laughs> which is That's not strange. Unusual. Wonder why. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you know, harder to tra- trace things back in time if there's a bunch of name changes. Right. But, you know, the leader who is now dead, um, Moses Berg, was a pedophile. And, and he had been sexually abused himself as a child, which is not an excuse for being a pedophile, but um, we see it in a lot of them. And, you know, the Family International denies this. What, um, you know, I'll acknowledge that. But back when he was still alive, you know, he started to, it started with him encouraging women to proselytize to men by enticing them into sex. Mm-hmm. He called it flirty fishing. And that was an okay way to like spread the word of God. And then it became like, oh, plural marriages and everybody can sleep with everybody. And then it started to go into pedophilia. Like, you know, there people can, again, I don't recommend you look this up, but one of his children. Sorry, but I already did. (laughs) And I wish I hadn't. Yeah. One of his children, I think he was adopted. um, He was called David Tito when he was a little kid was on the orders of Moses Berg sexually abused by his nannies. It was documented. It was sent out to the church as an example of how to parent. Oh my gosh. And there's a lot of good true crime information about this, but when that kid got old enough, he left and it was within the last 10 years, he tracked down one of the women that was his abuser, killed her and then killed himself. Oh my gosh. I didn't look that up. Yeah. Um, I unfortunately did learn about some of the materials and teachings of the children of God back when Moses Berg was running it. And it was very disturbing. Yeah. And so that's an example of an organization. And again, they disavow all of this now, even though you can find it online. You know, this is a, a, a cult where sexual abuse was part of the, I don't want to say scripture, but I can't think of a better word. Like he was a proxy for God. So if Moses said this was okay, it was okay. Another, That's just like Warren Jeffs. Yeah. Uh, very similar. Yeah. Very similar. Good point. And then another example would be uh, coming back to Jonestown. You know, it's pretty well documented by people who survived Jonestown, either because they left early or they managed to escape in the rainforest that he routinely sexually assaulted uh, female members of the church. And I I read, I I can't remember her name, but there's a woman, there's a survivor who wrote a book called Seductive Poison. And she actually survived being in Guyana. And she was also one of his victims in terms of sexual assault. And, you know, he wasn't getting up in front of his congregation and saying, it's okay to rape people, you know, like he wasn't doing that. but on the side in his personal life, he was doing that to members of the church who, you know, when you're someone who you think is your everything starts doing that to you, you know, that is highly traumatizing. And well, so it's a that, lot like grooming a child sexual abuse victim. Yeah, exactly. You know, because it's like you trust them, you depend on them. They say they're going to keep you safe and yeah. they start abusing you. Mm-hmm. They may be giving you special attention at first. Right. But then you're being forced to participate or be subject to something that you don't want anything to do with. Exactly. But you may feel like you can't escape. Yeah. Yeah. Therapist, 
We've all had that moment. You wake up in the middle of the night. Oh my gosh, did I do my notes? Well, you don't have to worry about that anymore when you use therapy notes. Therapy notes makes it easy to write your notes, get them done quickly, but thoroughly. My group practice has used therapy notes for six years and everyone always finds it easy to use. But the best thing is if you do need help, you can call their customer service number and a person answers the phone. And anytime I've ever had to use it, which is maybe three times in the past six years, my issue has been resolved easily with a cheerful demeanor in 15 minutes or less. So I highly recommend therapy notes. And don't forget, go to therapynotes.com and use promo code chat to get two free months. And I would say, I don't know that I would call Bikram yoga a cult necessarily, but that's kind of the same thing that happened with Bikram yoga, where he was on the side sexually assaulting all these female students of his who, you know, this man was their teacher, they believed in him, they trusted him. And for somebody to start doing that to you, I mean, you know, women or people, but especially women have a hard enough time being honest about sexual assault in quote unquote real life. In a situation like that, I mean, the odds of being honest and then being believed are very small, um, even smaller than in real life. So, you know, these are things that these traumas that are often repeated for years before somebody can break free. Yes. So I have been following recently the things that have been happening with Leah Remini talking about leaving Scientology and the real backlash she's faced in Hollywood and also Rose McGowan, who Mm -hmm. spoke out about abuse from Harvey Weinstein and then you know, I just learned that she has a new book out and she was a child in the Children of God cult as well as Joaquin Phoenix was as well. But I guess he's was in a different generation there. And from what I've read, he says it wasn't the same then. Yeah, the whole Phoenix family was actually I they had a bunch of kids, so I don't know how many were in or out when they had the kids. But yeah, the Phoenix family also was involved with that for some time. Right. And what did River Phoenix die from? Yeah, drug overdose. Right. Yeah. So that's really interesting. But yeah. I guess you piqued my interest too when you mentioned self-help and psychology cults. I need to know uh, <laughs> how to avoid that because... <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, something that used to exist, it's mutated and split off in a ton of different directions now. Things that were really popular in the 70s, something called EST. I don't know if you've ever heard of that that when I was a kid. What is it? Yeah. What EST was, was it was an organization that created these things called large group awareness trainings. Mm. And EST was a company that ran these trainings. And essentially what they are, where they were like a, a weekend, like, you know, a full 48 hours where people were big groups oftentimes would be brought together. And it was like a really therapy weekend where people would be encouraged to get really vulnerable and honest and engage in kind of like um, psychodrama type act- activities to help them break through the walls and things like this. And I think that EST probably started out as uh, something legit in terms of trying to help people. Unfortunately, there have been a lot of groups that have split off from that now that kind of use these large group awareness trainings in a 
manipulative, coercive, abusive fashion. You know, I, I'm not going to say that Landmark Forum is a cult because I, I think that some people get involved in it and can kind of just walk away. But they often use large group awareness trainings in such a way that, you know, people get, you know, you can't go to the bathroom. Um, you can't get something to eat or drink until it's over, putting people in a very vulnerable space where they're more likely to be convinced that they need to adhere to this belief system and they need to start selling it to their friends and family, etc. Now, Landmark Forum is something that I have kind of heard has something to do with like supposed to be like a business, like motivational kind of thing or something. It's a little bit of both. It's both kind of psychological self-help as well as a business sort of thing. Like, you know, I don't know if there's still an association with this, so I, I may be wrong, but the Cafe Gratitude, the restaurant chain. Is that a West Coast thing? It must be. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's like a vegan slash raw restaurant. Mm. Um, they are They are or were, again, I'm not sure, built largely out of people who were really really into Landmark Forum. And they actually got into some legal trouble for trying to force their employees to attend Landmark Forum weekends, employees who did not, who were not interested. <laughs> you know, that is so interesting that you said that because it reminds me of something pretty close to my life where somebody I know went to work for what is somewhat of a medical, a healthcare type practice that is owned by the Church of Scientology and the people who, but it's not really like said explicitly. Yeah, they're, they do that a lot. <laughs> yeah. And then the employees were made to go down to Clearwater, Florida and meet with these people. And, you know, it was just the same kind of thing, but it's like someone I know worked there and just innocently went to work there with no expectation of being, you know, persuaded in their beliefs or anything like that and ended up, you know, leaving in a way where they felt very unsafe. Well, you know, there's a couple things that, and I, I know that we don't want to speak exclusively about Scientology, um, but just to put it out there, because a lot of people don't know this, and this is the case with many other cults. I just happen to know more about Scientology, which is two things. One is that when you, let's say that you get hired at a dentist's office and the dentist is a Scientologist and he or she is the person in charge, Scientologists, a lot of them, not all of them, but are under heavy, heavy pressure to promote the religion mm -hmm. to people. And oftentimes their employees are their most captive audience. Um, and there's the, the power imbalance where when your mm -hmm. boss is asking you to do things, even if it's not really related to work, you feel pressured to say yes, right? And even because you want them to like you, you know, even if you're not afraid you're going to get fired. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's another thing which is real tricky, which is that Scientology owns and operates, I'm not kidding you, it's probably in the hundreds uh, of front groups where they are these nonprofit organizations that have no that appear to have no connection to Scientology. But when you actually look at the fine print or really get into them, they are pretty much just ways of siphoning people into the church. And two that I'll, I'll let you know about, one, and, and again, they oftentimes have little or no surface connection, 
they have one called the International Committee on Human Rights. Whoa. Like, that's that a sounds, misleading name. Yeah, it sounds legit. Like, that sounds like something I'd be into. I love Me I'm too. For human rights, right? Yeah. Except when you actually get into it, it it's just a, a way to siphon people into the church. And then another one that I have experience with because of my specialty in addiction is Narconaut. There is a chain of rehabs around. So the not NA, not Narcotics Anonymous, but it's called Narconon, right? Yes. Okay. Narconon. It's got the C in there. <laughs> yeah. Because um, there's Narcotics Anonymous and there's also Naranon, but this is Narconon. Okay. It is a chain of rehabs around the country that, again, have no surface connection to Scientology. But once you actually go there, all they use are Scientology techniques. And you are pressured to kind of start getting involved with the organization. And I've worked with a handful of addicts who tell me that they, you know, they're well-meaning families because it's pretty well established that Scientology messes with the Google Analytics and algorithm. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Such that when you Google like Arizona rehab, like Narconon will be on the first page. And so well-meaning but uninformed families have ended up sending people to these places only to find out when they get there, like, this place is weird. Like, what's going on? (laughs) You know, this is not what I expected rehab to be. And, you know, it's they they purposefully named it that because it's very easy to confuse with 12-step programs and legitimate recovery. And I've worked with clients who have told me that they've gone to Narconon and I've they've been so relieved and almost excited when they realized that I truly understood what they had been through Mm. because a lot of people hear them and then they go, wow, I don't know anything about that. That sounds weird. But you know, it's, it's been good to be able to validate their experiences. And uh, yeah, so those are just two examples of groups that on the surface, you don't see Scientology anywhere. You don't see the name Hubbard anywhere, but oh boy, is it there? Well, I will say about Scientology that when I was a kid, once again, watching TV, just watching a lot of TV. Mm-hmm. There used to be commercials for Dianetics and L. Ron Hubbard's books. Mm-hmm. And it sounded, even though I was just a little kid, it sounded like something very positive, loving, wonderful. Mm-hmm. That's Even that is like a subtle way of influencing people's perception by putting commercials on TV that, you know, whatever I was watching, I wasn't watching adult TV shows. Yeah. (laughs) So whatever commercials were coming on, they knew who was watching. Yeah. And, you know, uh, kind of going back to the trauma part where I was saying that when you brought it up, it made me think of two things. One is where uh, sexual or physical abuse happens in the organization. And another one is where it, it doesn't, it's not a routine part of the organization. It's more emotional, psychological abuse, uh, thought reform. And, you know, I would definitely put Scientology in that category. Now, there is some wiggle room with that because they do, they have been accused, uh, and I believe there's validity to it, to physically abusing people. They have this thing called the Rehabilitation Project Force of the RPF, where people get in trouble and then they have to run around in a circle in 100 degree weather for like five hours. Um, that, That would definitely, in my mind, count as physical abuse. But when it comes to kind of the the main thing that they do in Scientology is called auditing. And it is very much a process by which people's beliefs are broken down. They are kind of forced to 
believe things that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise. They are, you know, encouraged to consider themselves to be powerless and under the control of forces that are outside of them, a very authoritarian um, structure wherein, okay, maybe there have been Scientologists who have never, nobody's ever had a hand on them one way or the other, but if they've really worked the program in the group for a, a number amount of time, once they come out, they're going to have a lot of uh, emotional, mental scars that they need to work through. If they can come out, and that's, yeah. you know, one of the um, criticisms I've heard that you didn't mention of Scientology mm-hmm. is that critics say that they do this process where you kind of, I guess, I don't know, I guess lose your self-esteem is the only thing that's coming to mind. But then there's also, isn't there an aspect of giving all your money to them? Oh, yes. That is <laughs> That is a big, big part of it. So it's exploitative in multiple ways. Oh, yes, absolutely. Financially, psychologically, yeah, 100%. And, you know, I had my reservations about, because this is not the first time I've spoken publicly and specifically named Scientology, but I had my reservations going into it if I ever did want to mention them because they are known as being incredibly litigious. Mm-hmm. and that they quite, you know, it's pretty well documented that they, they've even stalked and harassed people who are critics or who have left the church. The reason that I am okay is, number one, I kind of know what I'm getting into, but number two, Leah Remini was really, I mean, it kind of started when Tom Cruise jumped on Oprah's couch, but mm-hmm. <laughs> things have things slowly crumbled, and then once Leah Remini left and did not leave quietly, they really have bigger fish to fry at this point, than singling me out or singling out a lot of people who have left. Their resources are at, you know, probably a lot less than they've ever been. They are really focusing on the kind of big fish like Leah Remini, Mike Rinder, Paul Haggis, kind of the big, either the the people who used to be very high up in the organization and have defected loudly or celebrities who have defected loudly. All of their resources are being tied up with those people and I've, I've actually seen it with former members that I have worked with uh, in my therapy practice where, you know, they were expecting a lot more in terms of being harassed or stalked. And it turns out that very little happened and they all kind of have the same opinion, which is like, yeah, you know, they, they don't have time for the little fish right now. Things are crumbling and they're, they're really expending all their resources on the big, loud, visible fish. Yeah. Wow. And I, I got to say, I, Leah Remini, her defection and the way that she has handled it is not just great in terms of like, wow, it's, it's so good to see, finally see a celebrity do this, a Scientology celebrity do this. But the amount of good that she has done for other people who want to leave cults is enormous. I mean, there's really no way to, to understate that. I I greatly admire everything that she has done because it's not just for Scientologists. It's for people who are in other groups that they're questioning to see somebody so publicly defect and to be so willing to go, man, what was I thinking? And she was, and it's even a little bit more key for her because she was born into Scientology. Mm -hmm. So to see somebody who isn't just like a first generation member, but an actual second generation member break free. Amazing. Yeah, she's been really brave. And I think what 
she made a very brave decision, but mm-hmm. also it's like the louder you are, mm-hmm. the less someone can actually harm you, you know, because mm-hmm. people would know if, if something happened to her, if somebody goes and grabs her off the street and throws her in the back of a car, like, uh-huh. you know, there are going to be a lot of questions about how that happened. Yeah, exactly. Because she's been so public. So, but I mean, she didn't know how it was going to turn out when she first did that. And I just think that's so brave. And yeah, again, it's a, another parallel between people who speak out about anything abusive that happens. Mm-hmm. They don't know if they're going to be believed, if they're going to be, you know, helped or not. Mm-hmm. Well, Natalie, yeah. I got to say, this has been a really, really interesting discussion. And we did not even touch on what I said I wanted to touch on the most. So I really, I wonder if you'd be willing to come back and do a part two because. Oh, sure. I really want to talk about what is the impact of either growing up or having spent time in a cult and leaving on clients you see and how, you know, how you're able to help them. And so, I mean, it was probably kind of foolish to think that 45 minutes would be enough time to cover all that anyway, but I would love to have you back and, and do a part two so that when everyone who's listening to this is dying for more, we'll be able to give them more. I would be thrilled to do that anytime. Just let me know. Great. Thank you. And so where can people find you and anybody in LA or whatever areas you serve in addition to LA that wants your help? Where can they find you? Sure. Well, there's a few different ways to find me. So my my, pra- my physical practice is located in West LA. You can find me, just my website, which I believe will be in your, your show notes, just drnataliefineblatt.com. Yeah. I'm also on social media. I'm the most active on Instagram, just drnatalief. And in terms of ways that I see people, I've got, I think, three options. So one is that I do see clients in my office here in West LA. Um, so if people wanted to see me in person, they could absolutely do that. Number two, I do see people for teletherapy, which is like video sessions, people who are in California, but not in the LA area. So people are like, oh man, like I might want to see her, but I live in Oakland. It's like, it's okay. We can, we might be able to work something out, you know? And then the third way is that I have been on betterhelp.com for almost two years And for people who don't know, that's one of the online therapy providers that are out there. And since I have started speaking publicly about this specialization, I have had the most former cult members contact me through BetterHelp. That makes sense. Yeah, because oftentimes people come out of cults financially decimated. And so seeing somebody for therapy, unless they have insurance, is not financially feasible. So something like BetterHelp is a much cheaper option. And people, and we can probably talk about this more next time, but when people find out that there are therapists who specialize in this, and it, it's not a huge group, but we do exist, they tend to want to see us because maybe they've tried other therapists who just aren't knowledgeable in this area. Sure. And they have a really hard time explaining their trauma to them. So it's people tend to be attracted to that when they hear about me. So you can contact me through my practice or you can contact me through BetterHelp. Wonderful. I'll put all of those in the show notes and I will follow up with you to schedule our next time to talk so that we can continue this conversation, which has been 
so interesting. Thank you so much for being on Therapy Chat today. You are welcome. Thank you for giving me the, the opportunity to talk about this. I really appreciate it. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com.